Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Restaurants and businesses may be forced to accept cash under new government proposals, but do you think it's time for a cashless society? The Taoiseach refuses to estimate the children's hospital bill as the opposition hits back. Who sets out to build anything, no less a national hospital, with no idea of how much it will cost and no idea when it will be finished? And later trials of a four-day working week hailed as a resounding success. We saw an increase in the amount of time people spent exercising. We saw a gain in positive affect, so kind of good mood, um, a downturn in stress, burnout. As always, you can join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight's sad news for the music world as Fleetwood Mac star Christine McVie has died following a short illness at the age of 79, her family have confirmed. The British-American rock band founded in London in 1967 sold more than 100 million records worldwide, making them one of the most successful groups ever. Well, correspondent Kate Fisher joins us now from Washington. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight, Kate. And I suppose we're going to you in the States because that's really where Fleetwood Mac um, made their name and made it big. Um, as for Kath, uh, Christine McVie herself, can you tell us about her influence within the band? She was one of their enduring voices, wasn't she? Yeah, absolutely. You talk about the huge success they had, and yet she was their greatest hit maker. Uh, if you just look at their 1988 Greatest Hits album, she either wrote or co-wrote 16 of the tracks on that. They're songs that, uh, even if you're not a, a big Fleetwood Mac fan, you've probably heard of everywhere, don't stop, you make loving fun, hold me, little lies, over my head. And my personal favourite, Songbird, uh, that beautiful ballad that apparently she wrote in just half an hour. She said in an interview some years ago that she woke up in the middle of the night, went to the piano that she had in her bedroom and simply wrote and, well, sang and played the song from start to finish. So a quite incredible musician, and she had a hugely influential part to play in uh, what was quite a sprawling band, Fleetwood Mac. Uh, now, Christine left the band in 1998, didn't she? But she rejoined them in later years and was playing up as recently as 2019. 
Yeah, that's right. She got back. She had a uh, hiatus uh, from the band, tried to do some solo work, which didn't get as much attention or accolades. But you're right. Back in 2014, she rejoined them, uh, partly because she was beginning to feel uh, isolated and she had been out of the public eye and off the stage for some time. But she rejoined the band, playing gigs with them up until 2019, as you say, and released new work then as well. Uh, and the band released a statement saying how much they would miss her uh, and the talking about the amazing memories that they'd all made together. Uh, so certainly a really um, significant loss to the world of music uh, and a woman who was behind some of the most enduring rock and roll songs uh, of the last few years. Kid Fisher in Washington, thank you for joining us tonight. Now, a reminder of our nightly interactive poll tonight, we ask, are you using less cash since the pandemic began? You can vote by using the QR code on screen now. Well, people should be able to pay in cash if they want to. The Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, has said the Department of Finance published the report of the Retail Banking Review, which predicted further decline in the use of cash as people increasingly pay for items online or through apps. Well, for more on this now, I'm joined by Fianna Fáil TD, Willie O'Dea, Social Democrat TD, Jennifer Whitmore, Irish Examiner, business journalist, Caught Caden, and Virgin Media's economics correspondent, Paul Colgan. And via Skype, we're joined by CEO of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, Adrian Cummins. Um, Paul, I want to come to you first, uh, because there is a big story before we get on to cash versus card about inflation falling for the first time in 17 months today. Do you think this marks a real turning point? Well, it's, it's a chink of light from the European Central Bank's point of view because they've been hiking interest rates for the past few months, uh, 50 basis points in July, 75 basis points in September, and then again in October, and inflation was climbing and climbing. And today, the Eurostat flash estimate seems to indicate that there might be a turning point. The inflation rate has come down for the first time in 17 months, so it was better than expected. And a big part of that, and people will have noticed it from going to the petrol and diesel pumps, was the drop in the price of oil last month. Uh, unexpected, I think. And the progress that has been made to a certain, in a certain respect with gas and what the European Union is trying to do in terms of replacing Russian gas with LNG and so on, that's driven down the cost of that. So that was reflected in the inflation figure and has led to speculation that homeowners might get a bit of relief from the ECB when they sit down again in, on the 15th of December and decide what they're going to do next. There was speculation they'd go for another big hike. It mightn't be as big this time out. And Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the US, making noises today suggesting that they might slow the pace of their interest rate hikes. So there, perhaps some light on the horizon at the end of what has been an unprecedented period of time. Yeah, so the decision is being made over whether that rate rise will be 0.5% or 0.75%, all of that having a big impact on, on mortgage holders and, and those, you know, paying back loans. Yeah, so it feeds right through to people's tracker rates. If you if you have a tracker mortgage, that you'll see that pop up immediately on your mortgage repayments and certain variable rates. And we've seen the banks over the past few weeks putting up their new fixed rates. So if you go looking for a new fixed rate, mm -hmm. you're going to, to pay the cost of these uh, rate hikes. So it's something that people will have to pay a lot of attention to over the next 12 months. And this is perhaps a sign that perhaps they won't go as far as we first thought they might in, in the summer. But it's, it is 
none of them really know what they're doing and it is unprecedented the, the situation they're having to deal with because the economies around Europe, whilst many of them are tipped to go into <coughs> recession, they aren't slowing as quickly as they mm -hmm. thought. I mean, this is a different balancing act, dif difficult balancing act. Yeah, and what we are seeing, Willie, which is interesting, is that, you know, while we're seeing inflation uh, slowing, it's not when it's coming to food prices. We're still, you know, that's on the rise and I think people will notice that in their weekly supermarket shop. Mm. Well, look, you know, I, I welcome, obviously, the news today and it's as you say it's a chink of light it's very tentative so far we don't know we don't know what's going to happen in the immediate future with the cost of energy which could uh, reverse the trend but but um, I mean I hope the European Central Bank uh, decide to go for the lower uh, rate increase because you know what the European Central Bank have been worried about is that if they if they raise interest rates too far too fast it'll just plunge the whole of Europe into recession mm -hmm. might be able to avoid that now if if the tide is turning um, it still may edge back though in the coming months mightn't it Jennifer when it comes to you know inflationary costs because energy contracts are up for renewal there's a lot in storage at the moment that could all change there's no there's no certainty as yet around any of this no there's not and what we've seen over the last year is it, it's a very very um, dynamic situation and I think it's going to be really important that we're dealing with it in a real-time uh, scenario you know I think it is very much the case that you know the central bank and and governments are going to have to just keep a very close eye exactly on what's happening we don't know what's around the corner first so we have to be prudent but we also do also need to make sure um, that if there is an opportunity to ease pressures, say from a mortgage perspective on householders, I, th I think it would be very welcome if that was to happen because people are really struggling at the moment mm -hmm. to keep on top of these high interest rates. Uh, Coach, I want to move on now to another story and what we mentioned at the top of the programme. And this is around the report of the Retail Banking Review. The Finance Minister, Pascal Donoghue, saying people should be able to pay in cash if they want to. And they should also be able to access cash in banks. It may seem like a pretty obvious thing, but it's not straightforward at the moment. Yeah, no, it's not. And one thing that we saw from a BPFI report to the Banking and Payments Federation uh, earlier this uh, this quarter was that in Q2, so the previous quarter, there was a 36 billion digital uh, transactions that occurred uh, during that period, which is a 12% increase compared to last year. So, I mean, all the signs are there to say that Ireland is going one way and it's digital, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Like being cashless blocks people out of society. Like cash welcomes in people regardless of age, regardless of um, immigration status, that kind of thing. So it's hard to tell. Um, there definitely should still be, you know, options for both. Mm. But, you know, I think there's more of an emphasis to go digital. And I think that the push from the Retail Banking Review isn't necessarily a bad thing to say, hang on a minute, like we still need to have cash flowing in the society. OK, well, let's get a bit of response uh, to this from businesses. Adrian Cummins joins us on the programme. Um, Adrian, if you're with me, uh, what do you believe? Uh, do businesses have a right to say no cash here? I mean, that's the situation at the moment. Um, it's something the government wants to change. Well, there's two sides to this, this story. You have certain businesses that are cashless at the moment. They, they advertise that they are cashless. Uh, tap and go, maybe coffee shop, maybe it's a small retailer. Uh, but then you have businesses where, you know, it's the old saying, cash is king at the end of the day. Uh, I think this is going to be a debate that's going to, to, to run on. I think the government should do a, an in-depth review and study of this independent of the banking sector. Because if you're a small business and you have to, you take cash, you bring it to the bank, you lodge it, 
there's a cost to that business in lodging this, that cash. There's a cost to the business in terms of security of holding the cash on premises. So some businesses may want to move towards a cashless cashless operation because of that, that fact. Uh, but then at the end of the day, there's certain parts of this country where they don't have uh, mobile coverage that has able to have the credit card terminal well, that, to that's, be isn't, isn't that the very point just in terms of consumer rights if you're talking about going into a cafe you actually can't get a coffee you can't get a meal say in some places if you have cash on you and no card is that really fair yeah that's why as i said there's two sides to this debate and i feel it should be a choice of the business whether they want to accept cash or not. So you not it, that it you is think that's fair most, enough then, is what you're saying? You think that's fair I think enough? We should, I, think the, I think there's bigger issues for our sector at the moment uh, and this debate around cashless. I think let's let's have the debate, but I think the predominantly consumer will still want to have cash in, in society, but let the business decide whether they accept it or not because there's lots of competition out in the market anyway. Okay. Uh, do you believe that? Willie, that businesses should be able to decide whether or not they accept a customer's <clears throat> cash? No, I don't actually. I mean, the uh, European Central Bank, I think, did a survey recently in Ireland and they found that a sizable number of people, in fact, I think a majority of the people surveyed, wanted some wanted cash to be in use to some extent. I mean, a lot of people use both cash and cards, including myself. Uh, but they, they, they wanted cash. And you saw the reaction there some time ago when the AAB tried to mm. make 70 of their branches cashless, uh, which I think, you know, reflects public opinion. Now, you see, for, 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 for years now, the banks have been trying to shoehorn Ireland in the direction of being a cashless society, simply to reduce costs for themselves. I mean, it gets rid of awkward things like bank tellers and ATM machines, etc., etc. Businesses seem happy about it as well, though, Adrian talk there about, you know, the extra uh, burden and, um, and hassle of using, yeah, of but, using cash. But, but business, yes, of course there are two sides to it. I mean, the, 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 as you know, it's a recommendation of the retail banking group. Now, they made another recommendation, and I agree with the recommendation, actually, that recommendation. There was another recommendation which they made, which I don't agree with, which was that the government should consider the possibility of uh, legislating preemptively to suddenly do this. And I, I don't agree with that. I think the government should consider no such thing. I mean, this has to be, as Adrian says, it has to be discussed and trashed out. But the fact okay. of the matter is, it must be, it must be customer-driven. Yeah. If it's customer-driven, the customers this, want no, cash. This is um, a report of the Retail Banking Review. Surely they've done their work on this. Yes. Right. So what more do you want, like... Where well, well, well there are a number here? of yeah, there are a number of issues. Yeah, there are a number of issues, such as Adrian mentions, for example, the the risk of of you know uh, for some businesses so that have to have cash in transit, etc. I mean, these things have to be trashed out. But basically, I agree with the legislation. There's two aspects to it. First okay. of all, the banks will be compelled to hold a certain amount of cash. But secondly, secondly, uh, this is going to be extended to shops, restaurants, etc. Because there wouldn't be any point in the banks holding a certain amount of cash. If the, if, if, the, if the local business people wouldn't take your cash. Yeah, I thought the, I, I, I presume the point of this was that businesses will be compelled to take your cash. That would be the point of it, Jennifer. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be very, very important that consumers have choice in this and that consumers aren't forced uh, down any particular road for the benefit of whether it's the banks or, you know, businesses. There is a cost to doing business and I think this is just one of those costs. Cash is legal tender and I do think that, that you know, that it should be an option for customers to use it. 
also in, with regard to the banks, I think the banks need to realise that actually they are there to serve our communities and not the other way around. So I think the focus is, is sort of upside down in this situation. I think what Coit said earlier on is really important. There are very many people in our communities who won't be in a position or will not feel comfortable moving to a cashless society. So people on low incomes, older people, perhaps younger people, minorities. So it's really important that they're not forgotten in this discussion. And I think, the, I mean, the other thing as well is we, when, you're, when you go cashless, it's going to make it very difficult for many people to budget. You know, there's a lot of knock-on impacts with this. And I think these are the sorts of considerations that government needs to take into, into account. Um, I'm thinking about businesses who currently only offer, say, card or tap. You know, mm. you know, many people wouldn't even have, use a card. They would actually use their phone to, to, to make purchases. And now that they would have to introduce a cash option that it could be, you know, difficult or awkward for them to do, it doesn't fit into, the, say, their business model coach. But would you say increasingly that people just don't have cash in their wallets. Oh, 100%. Uh, and they don't have cash in their in the shops either. Like I was in a situation where I drive, but I had to get the bus into town. And so I had like a, a tenner and I had to get change. And I went into like three shops mm. and they're like, sorry, we don't have any change. And I was like, Jesus, <laughs> you know. So it is a situation where it is just becoming more and more common. Um, but people don't have cash on them. and. That's another big problem for, like that's a that's another big issue for things like homelessness and that kind of thing. Like if you don't have any cash in you, it's it's feeding into other scenarios in society, you know. Yeah, it's also if you could ask Adrian about that in a bit, feeding into maybe if people can can uh, can tip or will tip because if you're just you know tap as you go, you're not maybe as likely to throw um, a few coins the way of, of someone who's offered you a good service. Um, but Paul, on this. Um, I mean, the, the issue around accessing cash and ATMs, that's a huge problem. We've had a massive banking exodus. We've Ulster Bank leaving as well as KBC leaving the market. And some communities have actually had to fund their own ATMs. That's what we're actually seeing right now. Yeah, well, AIB got taught a very sharp lesson when they tried to do it earlier this year with their, their 70. So uh, their, their attempt to, to make 70 uh, branches cashless. People want cash and they want to keep cash and... There are certain groups within society that will will continue to do so. I wonder whether the younger generation, which is used to sharing their life with Instagram and, and Snapchat and TikTok and so on, are less concerned about privacy and the amount of information you're giving your bank than older generations are. Now, it's been the case for a long time now. Anecdotally, brokers would say to you if you're applying for a mortgage application or something like that, you might want to reconsider some of the direct debits. You might want to reconsider what you're tapping for because the banks will be able to see what you spend your money on and, and, and draw their own conclusions from that. Well, that's very so that, true. that's a broader issue, I think, that will have to be considered in this whole, whole debate. Yeah, cash is quite private and discreet. And, you know, you know who, who knows where you're getting it from and who knows where it's going to. And the same, I suppose, could apply to businesses as well. Um, but we're going to bring you the results of our poll tonight. We ask, are you using less cash since the pandemic began? And the poll found that 67% voted yes, they are. 33% voted no. So a third of people still hanging on to their wallets and hanging on to their cash. But Willie, just to come back to that point about the banks um, and the fact that cash is inaccessible for many people now. You said that AIB, there was a U-turn on that. But like, you know, should it have come to that point? Like, why are we only setting about sort of legislation around all of this now? Should we have had a situation that people were unable to access cash, that you go somewhere and the ATM that used to be there is suddenly blocked up and you can't, you can't get money out in a shop? 
Yeah, I don't think, by the way, that your interpretation of the poll is quite correct. It's 67.33. Of that 67%, some of them are probably using both cash and cards. You know, I think a majority of people still want some access to cash. Well, we're uh, just asking the question. Should we have, have legislated sooner? Yeah, well, you know, the, 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 the uh, banking retail group was set up to advise the government to come up with suggestions as to what the government should do in this type of situation. They, and, and their remit was broader than that, of course. They have come up with their recommendations now and the government have signalled that there will be legislation early in the, well, in the new year, yeah, it's possibly just, early in the new year. Some would argue that it's got to a very critical, a crisis point, actually. Um, in terms of, you know, banking services well, we had and to, the lack yeah, of them in this well, country. Well, well, the government were waiting for the outcome of the of the uh, retail banking report and it was it was it made a number of recommendations. Yes. Some of them are quite controversial. Uh, but I suppose, you know, there's no point in, a point in, 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 in setting up or acquiring a dog if you're going to back yourself. All right. Uh, Adrian, when it comes to, I suppose, what the government plan on doing with the report to the Retail Banking Review, it seems very clearly that the Finance Minister certainly wants to um, compel um, businesses to offer choice to people. Yeah, well, that's the recommendation from the group. Obviously, the Minister will make the final decision. We will engage with the Department of Finance from our perspective. There are certain businesses out there, it doesn't suit them to be a a, uh, to have cash on premises or to accept cash, they've gone for the cashless um, type of business, uh, and we want to advocate to the Minister for Finance when he makes a decision. Leave let let there be choice in 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 the debate. Let there be choice in the market, and consumers will make up their own mind at the end of the day. They can go elsewhere if they are right. not offered either card use or cash mm. use. In a, in a premises, yes. that's it. Go Vote with your feet, essentially, Adrian, is what you're saying, is it? Absolutely. All right. Uh, there we leave it. I wonder about the drop-off in tips, actually, um, as a result of a increasing use of, of cards over cash. Have you seen that? Uh, we, have, we haven't seen a drop-off in, in tips. You know, t you know, we're open eight months since the pandemic, uh, and we can see the same level of tips, gratuities uh, for our industry. And obviously, tomorrow is... Uh, Red Letter Day, the new legislation comes into an act on the 1st of December for the transparency around tips, gratuities and service charge, which we welcome for the customer and also for our staff. Yes, I would say a lot of people in the industry will be happy about that one. Uh, there we'll leave it. My thanks to Court, to Paul and to Adrian. The rest of the panel will be staying on with me after the break. New hope for Alzheimer's patients with promising treatment breakthrough. So stay with us. beginning of the end in the search for effective Alzheimer's treatments after a new drug reduced memory decline among patients with early stages of the disease. The Alzheimer's Society of Ireland has welcomed the results of the clinical trial. And a little earlier, I spoke to Dr. Laura O'Philbin, who is a research and policy manager at the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. This is a really pivotal day for us. There's been 30 years of failed trials to develop a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And this is the first treatment that has had unambiguous and consistent evidence that actually might slow down the progression of Alzheimer's disease. So until this point, there hasn't been anything. And we've now moved into this zone where 
we now have options that, that might be available in the coming years for people who are affected by dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So it's a, a huge day of hope for us all here. Well, you say in the coming years, I mean, realistically, how soon could people potentially avail of this drug that is not without its side effects, is it, right now at least? Yeah, so absolutely, there are side effects associated with the drug and the pharmaceutical company have just finished their clinical trial. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. So we would be expecting a decision by the FDA, which is the American regulator, um, as early as January. And if that goes well, then it will go to Europe and Japan for regulation. And it's the regulators that will be looking really closely at the safety information to see if they should approve it or not. OK, so we don't have a timeline as yet. We'll have to see where all of that goes, but certainly a major step in the right direction. Um, just sure. in terms of using this drug, how critically important is it that people, I suppose, who are at very early stages of the disease um, take it? And how challenging will that be to identify those people, I guess? Yeah, so it's really, um, the trial was basically aimed at people who have mild cognitive impairment, which is pre-Alzheimer's disease and very early Alzheimer's disease. So that is right kind of at the beginning of when people are starting to experience symptoms. So it's really important that people, you know, if this drug is around, that people are attending their GP. It's important to look after your brain health. And it's important to remember that dementia can affect people in their 40s, 50s and 60s. It is not just an older person's disease. So I would really urge anyone out there, even though we don't have the drug yet, do go and see your GP if you have any concerns because it is really important. Now, if the drug reaches Irish shores, it will be 
administered intravenously every two weeks. So that will come with challenges. You know, our, our hospitals aren't, aren't quite set up for this yet. We have incredible healthcare professionals who go above and beyond. But now it's about funding and infrastructure to get Ireland ready to administer something like this. OK, Dr. Laura O'Philbin, uh, ASI Research and Policy Manager, thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. Thanks so much. Well, in other news, the Taoiseach Micheál Martin has said it would be a mistake at this point to state the final cost of the National Children's Hospital and has vowed not to play the contractor's game. Fianna Fáil's Willie O'Dea and Social Democrat TD uh, Jennifer Whitmore and Irish Examiner Health Correspondent Neve Griffin are, uh, are with us tonight. But first, we can take a listen to some of those dull exchanges earlier. Who sets out to build anything? no less a national hospital, with no idea of how much it will cost and no idea when it will be finished. That would be a mistake. Because if you're interested in costs, you don't announce to the contractor the level which you want to go to. That is the wrong approach to take now. That's the wrong approach to take now. Um, Neve. We, we don't have an idea really yet. Well, some would say we have a fair idea and it's likely to be well over the two billion mark by the time this is completed. It's a never-ending story, isn't it? Because we got the estimate initially that it would be 800 million euro to build. That was the estimate in 2014. Yeah, We've come a long way financially since then on, the, on this. Uh, yes, indeed. And our, our people were shocked at the idea of 800 million. And now we're at 1.433 as approved spending. But we heard Minister Donnelly say today that it is going to be significant, significantly more than that. Um, and he also, this, this line that you can't say how much it's going to cost because it's commercially sensitive. Um, we know, well, we knew in February there was 542 million um, euro worth of disputed uh, claims between with the contractors. So that's that's bringing it up really to two billion. If I mean that's all under negotiation and, and under a moratorium, mm -hmm. but it's being discussed and we've got now the opening date. Uh, the latest was it could be as late as the end of 2024 before children are seen in there. Even though the, the building would finish probably around March or April. It's of, supposed of to be finished now, isn't it? Yes, there's supposed to be children treated there now, and um, you like. People probably saw the trolley figures this week. We know that over 500 children were on trolleys, so they need that hospital. Yeah, they clearly do. Actually, we had record mm. figures for children on hospital trolleys yes. for the month of November, uh, figures that we haven't seen before. Before we get to those trolley figures, Willie O'Dea, you know, what do you say about <laughs> Micheál Martin's line of not playing the contractor's game and the, the builders may submit more financial claims and these can be contested? I mean, at this point... It was estimated to cost 800 million euro. Yeah. It's taxpayers' money. It's now creeped up to 1.43. That was 2019. It's likely to be way more than that. Is that a fair way to be spending our money? Well, of course it isn't. I mean, the, the contract, the, the initial contract was agreed long before we came into office. And, you know, I'm, my advice... Well, that I'd was be, a relative bargain compared to what it's costing now, well, well, 800 million. Well, well, yes, but there were some mistakes in the contract which has resulted in the price going up. There has been other factors in the meantime, such as the COVID, such as inflation now, the war in Ukraine, again, supply, supply chain difficulties. But certainly, yes, it is, it is a disaster. 
the, the cost has gone up so yeah, much. The as cost you say, one point up just that one point four billion. Like that was as December twenty nineteen. That was yeah. pre-war in Ukraine. One point four billion. One point four billion. Well, we're talking about we're, we're talking now in terms of it being possibly higher than one point four billion. There's there's um, there's going to be a certain cost to integrate the services of the children's mm-hmm. hospitals that are there already. In addition to that, and then there is the legal claims. Now, look. There's no point in saying that because people are looking for 500 million, they're necessarily going to get 500 million. Some of those claims have already been, uh, um, I'm advised that some of those claims, initial claims have already been withdrawn. The, the state can defend them. There's no, uh, d- there is no way you can reasonably estimate how much they're going to cost. You know, I mean, is Michael Martin right? Or does there actually need to be more transparency around no, this at this point, well, William well, well, he's right in the sense that he can't, he can't give a figure, he can't give an estimate. I mean, who knows how many of the so claims will be successful? Yeah, but who we knows? Won't know. yeah, who knows? Who exactly. knows? Who knows how many of the claims and are going who, to be successful and how many of them are going to yeah, fail? And, I mean, and, I mean if, and remind me who's paying yeah, for this. Yeah, it's the taxpayer, of course, who's yeah. paying for it. I understand all that. But, I mean, are you suggesting to me that, you know, Michal Martin or anybody else, indeed, in that position, is expected to be able to look at 500 legal claims, he's not even a lawyer, and anticipate whether they're going to succeed or fail, and if they succeed, how much is going to be paid, whether they succeed partially or wholly? Is this down to legal mm. claims that's um, bouncing up this cost yet again, an already ballooned cost, well, Jennifer. I think this is down to uh, an inability of this government and previous governments to actually deliver infrastructure projects on time and within budget. I mean, we're not asking them to send people to the moon. This is just a hospital. And issues with this hospital were flagged back in 2013 and 2014. It was made very clear by campaigners at that time that there was going to be huge costs associated with this hospital because of the site that was chosen. Um, I was actually involved as a councillor at the time and I actually led a campaign within Wicklow against this hospital because for my constituents in Wicklow, this is going to be the children's A&E. And I just think the sight of it was, was, was wrong. But I mean, even at that point, we were talking about the costs. Were and there issues, be... though? Willie's pointed to, to issues in, in the contract, in, in the deal in the first place that allowed, you know, costs set at 800 million to climb to, to where we're at now. Well, I suppose we, we, we don't have sight of the contract. I mean, that's the difficulty. Well, there hasn't been any, sorry, Willie, there hasn't been any transparency in this. Any time that, you know, it goes before any of the committees, the questions about costs, about, you know, what, what what's actually happening with it. And, and the government has always shut those down. So there hasn't been transparency well, in this. For, for Jennifer, you could, yeah. ask, you could ask your present party leader, who was junior minister in the Department of Health at the time the contract was agreed, she was junior minister in the Department of Health at that time, was she not? I, I actually, I don't know. When was that, 20? Or, or, the... Sorry, sorry. Yes, 20, 2014. Well, look at, I mean, you can ask her as well, Willie. I don't know what the situation is, but what yeah. I'm saying is that actually at that point in time, yeah. there was concern. And that was six years before we came to, you, that was six years before we came and to office. Yeah, and, and, we, you took, and we, you took, you took that deal and you took the contract and you, you, you continued to mismanage. There was I mean, billions, there was billions spent was, in the death stage. Uh, there, well, there was hundreds so, of millions spent in the death stage. What do you think? Potentially over two billion. Are you suggesting we should just scrap the contract? But the reality is, this was meant to be built in by 2022. If your government had actually delivered it by 2022, we wouldn't be at the point where they're saying that the inflationary costs are was pushing us you, up. You, you must have missed the COVID. I mean, we had COVID. Remember? Oh, look, at, we well, like, you're going to have to drop the COVID yeah, baby. Yeah, you can't keep on blaming COVID for inability to deliver projects. The building still went on during that time because it was such a critical project. At a very much slower pace. At a very much slower pace. 
Well, you'd have, you'd well, have, if you had finished it before the war in Ukraine, which people yeah. are pointing to yeah. as a reason for yeah. costs rising, I mean, yes. the, the longer it goes on, the more crisis are getting involved in it and the higher the, the, the cost is going to go. Yeah, yeah. and it, the, more, the more it'll cost um, every one of us, uh, every taxpayer up and down the country and every yeah. person who's actually waiting in a trolley now in our emergency departments. Well, including so, ourselves, yeah. Yeah. Including me as an individual, Jennifer as an individual, everybody's an individual. It's not just a question of the politicians over here and the people over oh, here. Yeah. We're all, we're all, it's costing all us all. Yeah, yeah, all of yeah. us. We all pay, we all pay taxes, to, whether to, we're working just, or not, we just pay taxes. To, I just wanted to clarify that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about the trolley figures, um, mm. Willie O'Dea. Limerick is a black spot again. It is. Um, it is. The hospital there. Let, yeah. let, let's, you know, the, these are record figures now for the month of... Um, November and uh, on that point I mean should we be at this now we've heard what the INMO is saying they're saying this is catastrophic this is an emergency and government needs to do something about it now well you know the government well first of all in the last two years the government have increased the staff in the Department of Health by 16 and a half thousand they've they've increased critical care uh, ICU beds by 25%. They've added 927 acute beds to the service and 340 community beds. So a lot of money has been spent. But if I can give but, you, but if we're talking about Limerick, you know, I mean, I, I have a very good knowledge of Limerick because it's my constituency and I'm dealing with this on a daily basis. And I recall a couple of years ago, uh, the difficulty is lack of capacity. I recall a couple of years ago, we were putting on all the people from all the different parties in the area were putting on a lot of pressure on the government for a number of new beds. We got a 60-bed unit, and the situation, unfortunately, did not improve. Now, uh, I was at a, I attended a function there about, we, we renewed our pressure, and I attended a function there about two weeks ago where the Minister for Health opened, laid the foundation store for another nine, stone for another 90 beds. Mm. And I had a meeting last week with the CEO uh, of, the, of the hospital and her team, and she told me by the time there are people being admitted to this 90-bed unit, we still have the same situation. You sound like you're in opposition, Willie O'Dea. Yeah. I mean, 1,600 patients on trolleys in Limerick no, I mean, um, this I, month and nationally 12,624. I'm, I'm not defending that. I'm telling you that the government are spending a ginormous amount of money on health, number one. Number two, yes. I'm telling you what they did since okay. the COVID. I know, and number three, I'm telling you about my own experience putting, in Limerick. Yes, and we're putting a lot of figures out there. But the bottom mm. line is we have record numbers yes. in our emergency departments mm -hmm. awaiting mission to our hospitals, Jennifer Whitmore. I mean, there is, there's no shortage of money arguably being thrown at this, and we even saw Stephen Donnelly looking for more and um, the health budget again today, and, mm. and where, is all this, where is all this money going? Whatever changes are being made, they're not actually impacting services right now, are they? No, they're, they're not. And look, I mean, Willie's talking about the amount of money that's going into it. it. It's not the amount of money that's going in that we need to look at. It's the outputs and the outcomes for, for patients. And they are getting progressively worse. And, you know, like a, a family member of mine was in hospital recently and she was told that there wouldn't even be a trolley for her. You know, so, it, it, like, you know, she, she would have been grateful for a trolley and, and, and she ended up sitting on a seat for, for hours and hours. So, you know, like, it is incredibly difficult. And it's difficult for, for people who are working in the hospital as well you know like it's um it, it's it's putting huge pressure on on the staff in the hospitals it's just making it it's making it a very unsafe environment for both them and for their patients and something has to be done because we cannot continue with this uh, lack of of service provision lack of care that it, that is actually yeah. there for uh, look i think honestly people struggle to understand neve how mm -hmm. when we're talking about all this money being put into the health service again we had right. Stephen uh, donnelly in front of an iraq this committee today talking about increased money increasing health budgets. 
But when you have these really poor outcomes right now in, in November, yeah. when we have these record figures, when we have the INMO coming out and saying, we need private hospitals and everything to get on board because this isn't working. What, what's going wrong? Um, well, it's just, it's dreadful, isn't it? I mean, there's, I don't think anyone on any side of the argument can say it's, it's going right. There seems to be a couple of things. One, it seems the growth in the population came as a surprise to the people who planned hospitals, which it shouldn't have had because that's been happening slowly. And then the unexpected thing is that people, older people are more frail because of the pandemic, so they're using hospitals more. Um, but that's not their fault. It's not anybody's fault. But there's also seems to be an issue with, um, sh in the past anyway, with short-term fixes, these winter plans, instead of recognising as doctors and some of the HSE would now say as well that it's a 12-month problem. So you need to rearrange the whole business. So Limerick, one of the biggest problems in Limerick is they don't have enough beds. And that's compared to hospitals with a similar catchment size in Dublin, they're, they're more than 100 beds down. So they will never, as you say, they're fighting to stand still and they never will get ahead unless they get perhaps an elective hospital. Professor Colette Cowan is now looking for where you could take the non-emergency care out of the hospital. But these are big structural issues and they don't get looked at because they're... I suppose they're the things that Slauntecare should be addressing, the idea of a multi-year plan. Yes. But where, where are we going with that? Well, one thing, yeah, well, one, one, one thing, is, uh, one thing I, would, I, would, I would suggest is that, as you say, uh, Limerick, is, it, we, we, we've had this shortfall in capacity for quite a long time now. And uh, I, I think, personally, that the, the idea, and it, it, it stems from Slauntecare, Regional okay. to, to regionalise the delivery of the service again to get back, move back towards the old health boards. Unfortunately, that's that's where we got okay. to go. I think so they that's were more what accountable. You to do. So well, I, well, I think that's one of the that's one yeah. one I think that's within Slauncher Care actually is. Is, is a pullback to yeah. that. But where that's going, sure, that's um, anyone's guess. We're still waiting probably to get a further progress report on 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 where that is at. Mm -hmm. um, so the problems do continue. Um, but we will leave that there for now. Uh, coming up after the break, trials of a four-day working week are hailed as a resounding success. Stay with us. Ireland's first ever trial of a four-day working week has been described as a resounding success with all 12 companies that tested the new schedule now planning to continue it on into the future. Employees were universal in their praise of the trial, reporting reduced stress, burnout and fatigue, while being able to sleep more every night. But Willie, Jennifer and Eve have stayed on with me and joining us via Skype is Caroline Reedy from the HR Suite. Uh, Caroline, it all sounds like great news. Is this realistically now, do you believe... The way forward for employees and for workplaces? I think it's another form of flexibility, Claire, that we really welcome. Um, we've seen remote working, hybrid working, working really, really well. And I think the survey has highlighted the benefits of the four-day week for companies that it'll work well with. It obviously won't work well for all companies. And I think as well, the devil is in the detail, are those that are working the four days uh, covering for the person who is only working four days or is there an actual increased productivity? I think um, six-month trial has given us uh, confidence that it's worth trialing further and it might give other companies confidence to trial it as well. Mm -hmm. But I definitely think it's early days until it becomes the norm. 
norm like countries like Iceland have in place. So are they looking at reduced working hours? So you do your, you know, or is it 40 hours a week crammed into four days so that you're actually building up all your hours and all your work on those four days so you can get that one day off on, say, the Friday or, say, tonight, say, the Wednesday night so we wouldn't have this panel on at all. It'd all be at home <laughs> with the feet up. Is that the, is that the idea, though? The um, idea is that you work 32 hours and you get paid for 40. So you work four days, but you get paid for five. And the idea is your productivity is so high that you actually um, are entitled to your five days wages to compensate for that. Do you think employers are going to do that? Do you think that would happen realistically? Like essentially, if they're going to say you're getting a day off, you're working actually fewer hours for us now, but you're going to keep we're going to keep your pay the same. They're going to do that. I think in certain jobs where it can be very self-directed, like accountancy, IT jobs, where the person can self-direct their own work, as you said, they can really increase their productivity over those days. I think in certain jobs, it simply won't work. It'll put increased pressure on those that are covering for that person who is taking that day off in effect, because ultimately the, the pro it can't be managed over four days. What, what so I think it's you job talking specific. about, Caroline, that, that, won't, that it won't work for? Like, I'm immediately thinking, like, it wouldn't work in a, in a school unless, you know, kids are going to be sent Absolutely. home one day of the week. Um, and in Absolutely. all those other it won't work in hospitals. Absolutely. Hospitals, retail. There's lots of jobs I think it won't work in. The majority of the trial companies are those that are working in um, administrative type jobs. And mm. I think that's where you can see the person can increase their own productivity to get mm. the work done within that time. I think as well, it's a big retention uh, tool. Like I know of a company that have done it and they've retained their staff over that period that they've ran that uh, program. So so I think people are thinking differently, mm. no different to the introduction of remote and hybrid. They're seeing the four day week as one of those things to stand out from the crowd. But ultimately, as to whether it's going to be something we see across society in Ireland, I think it's going to be very job specific. Okay. But I think it's something everybody would love in reality yeah. if it was possible. It strikes me that you're going to have that two tier working uh, society, Neve. that you'll have those who can avail of the four day week and very much enjoy it. But there's other people in really important jobs in hospitality and retail or elsewhere that maybe can't avail of it. Although, you know, should allowances be made? Like, is there a way to make things possible that didn't seem to be possible, like in the healthcare sector, like in the teaching profession? Well, you'd like to think so. I mean, you wouldn't like to see that division where we saw during the pandemic people could work from home and be nice and safe while other people were out working in retail and working, working in hospitals, like you say. Um, I don't know if there's a way where you could split if a shop is open seven days a week and some people work four and some people work three and then it's swapped over at different times. Mm -hmm. um, but you'd worry about the employers, I suppose, w trying to figure out their, are they getting their enough bang for their buck? And then the other thing is, do people really not phone you or not call you or not expect you to come in? Would that extra day be respected? Yeah, that's you the know, big the issue, big isn't cultural it? cultural change, the sort I imagine. Of the, the always on and um, the right to switch off. I know that there was sort of legislation being brought in around that, but um, you would wonder how much any potential new boundaries would be 
respected in any case, Jennifer. Yeah, and look, I think it, you know once it became accepted and normal, I do think that that those boundaries would would be um, accepted. I think it's it's important to realise as well that like we aren't the first country to think of this. You know, other countries have have done it. Iceland well, been has had a strong very strong lobbying very, around it, hasn't well, it? Well, absolutely. And you know, in Iceland, they they rolled out a pilot project. It worked really well, and now eighty six percent of their workforce actually works a four day week. So a lot of the problems that we're talking about here would, I would imagine, have already been resolved in in Iceland. So I think it will be really important for us to look at a country where it's been successful mm. and actually try bring something in here similar. I mean, you know, I think I think for for people's work life balance, mm -hmm. uh, for young families, for, I think it, I think it will be really important that do, we try it. Do you think will it be acceptable for politicians to have a four day working week? Oh God, Some would no. say maybe they already have a four day working oh, oh, week. Oh, when oh, does it start? When does it end? When do you clock off? Absolutely not, Claire. I mean, I absolutely dr I dread. The idea of taking a day, if I was to take a day off in the week, I, 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 I'd be scared. I'd, I'd be scared to death of looking at my Did emails the following day. Did not leave Dublin on Thursday? Yeah, and you think their work stops and they leave Dublin? Do we spend the weekend lying on the beach? No, it's a seven-day week job, and you're expected to be around. There's no I hope there's no I, beach I, I in Limerick. I use, we I know use, that I one. use the weekends. I use the weekends to interact with my constituents. Who and what are about to your, see me what about, about staff? Say, uh, you know. Mm. Would, would you believe? Would you, do you think that, that they should be entitled to say that that four-day week and that yeah, I think uh, work-life balance that we're all absolutely yeah, I think I'm, 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 I'm all for that. And I mean, the, the survey showed that productivity increased. The employers who, who cooperated with the survey were happy. The employees were happy. And uh, you know, it's 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 something I would I would certainly think we should aspire to. Okay, well, that's good to have that aspiration at least. Um, that is it from us. My thanks to all my guests tonight. From all the late team here, good night and do take care.